Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, July 27th. Well, everyone talks a lot these days about the effects of social media, mostly the ill effects of disinformation and standards of beauty and things like that that go viral online, causing harm to individuals and society. But if we are in one era of content that goes viral online, we're at the end of another, according to a new book by Ben Smith, who has seen it and been a central participant. Ben Smith, as some of you know, is a former New York Times media columnist, now editor-in-chief of the new site Semaphore, and he helped us start BuzzFeed, which has now hit hard times and recently closed down its once influential news operation entirely. Now Ben has a book about the rise and fall of several early viral media giants, mostly Gawker and BuzzFeed, launched when the very idea of something going viral online was new. The book is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. And maybe you've seen Ben's related guest essay already in the New York Times called We're Watching the End of a Digital Media Age. It all started with Jezebel. Ben, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. What a delight to be on. Your lead in the Times essay mentions several news organizations in the group that your book is about, Vice, Gawker, The Huffington Post, Business Insider, and BuzzFeed News, as well as Jezebel. What are they as a group, or what were they at their founding that ties them together? They were a group of of outlets that started in the early 2000s, most of them in downtown Manhattan, at a moment when, you know, the internet was exploding, when legacy outlets, television, newspapers, even radio, were kind of struggling to figure out what this new internet was. And also when I think the media, when a lot of people were pretty disappointed with how mainstream media had covered the invasion of Iraq. And I think this sort of, you know, the sort of cultural and technical moment meant people were very interested in these new outside voices, which, you know, had different ideologies, different theories, different characters driving them, but were this little kind of cauldron of innovation in, in, in the early aughts that led to, as social media then grew, in particular Facebook, you know, suddenly a few years later were being seen by tens and hundreds of millions of people every day. And your book is largely about two guys who intentionally pushed the viral media era to the forefront, Jonah Peretti, who started Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, and Nick Denton, who started Gawker. So why is your premise in the Times article that it all started with the feminist site Jezebel? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. These two these two guys in the early aughts, you know, with these very different ideas about what media ought to be. Jonah thought it would be very optimistic, positive, that social media would be almost kind of utopian. And and Nick Denton, who created Gawker, thought it was the reverse, that it would expose hypocrisy. But they were both very, very interested in getting traffic. And Denton was in the business of, you know, selling advertising and thought that a, a women's site would sell makeup, basically, and was interested in that and and was rec- and, re- and recruited this very brilliant editor named Anna Holmes, who actually she was cautioned not to use the word feminist in the memo she wrote for him. But I think in some ways was the really what she did. It's really kind of an incredible year, 2007, just tapped into this new energy of both the way the internet could open up social movements and then the way it could really turn on itself and create this kind of firestorm of 
outrage outrage culture that would later become familiar but i mean they launched in this hilarious way with a ten thousand dollar bounty for an unretouched photo from a women's magazine which which was not the kind of like there was not the kind of public conversation about the Photoshop the way there is now, but they, and they actually got somebody to turn up with a with a before picture from Red Book of Faith Hill with with smile lines and freckles that they that mm. the magazine had removed, and it sort of forced you know this huge industry of the beauty industry and, and and the kind of women's fashion industry. This blog almost single handedly really forced them to examine kind of some of what they were doing. The total absence of black models was another big issue that they pushed on and. And, and the sort of openness of the internet, the frankness of the conversations they had really moved the needle. But the women writing for it also found that they had developed this intense relationship with an audience that was new and that wasn't what you had in the old print culture. And that at times, like if they stepped out of line, suddenly they would face the fury of their own audience. And I don't know, it was an interesting story to me because it was like what they kind of lived in 2007 was both kind of the promise and the peril of what a lot of journalists sort of saw as as the internet 10 years later. Now, this is going to sound quaint, but I have some clips here of Jonah Peretti, founder of Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, on this show in 2008. And in this first clip, he's describing the first thing that I think made him really famous when he had a battle with Nike a few years earlier over his desire to have them write the word sweatshop on his sneakers. Here's Peretti on the show on July 21st, 2008, describing that. I was in graduate school at at the MIT Media Lab, and I was supposed to be writing my master's thesis, and I was procrastinating. I went to Nike's website, and they had this new service where you could customize your shoes with a word or a phrase. And so as a challenge to Nike and as as a joke, I ordered a pair of shoes with the word sweatshop on the side. And I just wanted to see, would Nike send me a pair of shoes with the word sweatshop on it? And they wrote back some evasive bureaucratic responses, and we had a kind of humorous back and forth. And at the end of it, I said, oh, this is kind of funny, and I sent it to a few friends. And then those friends passed it on to their friends, and they passed it on to their friends, and it started spreading like wildfire around the web. And eventually, it got to producers and to journalists, and I ended up on the Today Show debating sweatshop labor with a Nike executive. And I didn't even really know that much about sweatshops. It was it was more that um, it was funny, and it was something that was easy to share, and it was something that people in their office felt like, oh, I can send this to everyone. It has it's funny, and it has a political message, and I want to make this this spread. And it reached, you know, millions of people because of that. And, of course, Sweatshop was a critique of how Nike was having some of its sneakers made. So, Ben, how seminal a moment was that in the development of the idea of going viral online? Yeah, I mean, I think that prompted Jonah in particular to see and develop this whole theory of how there would be a new media that you, where you weren't just listening to something on the radio or watching it on TV, but you were getting it from your friends that would later become social media. And it's interesting because I went back and I watched what he was, as he mentioned, he wound up on the Today Show debating a Nike spokesman, despite the fact that Jonah didn't really know anything about sweatshops, as as he says there. (laughs) And um, in the debate, the Nike spokesman also says something that feels prescient, which is where at some point he says, well, you know, I'm just glad everybody's talking about our products. And And do you think that Nike actually benefited from that critical interaction and how much it spread online because just say the name of my product and I'm going to win 90% of the time? You know, I don't know, but I do think that we took a much simpler, I mean, I think in general, we was a pretty kind of utopian ideological moment back in the early aughts. And I think a lot of us had a very clear sense of where the internet was going, how it would all work out. That was among other things, really kind of politically progressive. Like it was 
sort of taken for granted that these outlets were helping Barack Obama. Huffington Post very explicitly was there to help Democrats. Um, Barack Obama visited Facebook, and it was obvious that Facebook was like a democratic institution. Of course, Obama visited the place that helped all the college kids vote. Um, and I think there was this moment, you know, in the I guess around the 2016 election where people realized, oh, the culmination of that these media products wasn't the election of Barack Obama, it was the election of Donald Trump. Well, why do you think that happened? I mean, if we accept the premise that the far right is not the majority in America, uh, and part of your premise is that they came to dominate viral online media, how did it become so unrepresentative? You know, I think that these tools were built and great at sort of waging war on institutions. And that they were this revolt, first this revolt inside the little New York media world against these stuffy and in many ways kind of outmoded and problematic New York, you know, media institutions from Condé Nast to the New York Times. But that ultimately, I mean, when I reported it out, actually, to me, one of the most surprising things that I hadn't quite realized was that all the people who would create, or a lot of them, the, the far right of the next decade, the founder of the Proud Boys worked, also co-founded Vice, um, Andrew Breitbart, who was a key promoter of Trump and his site became the central promoter of Trump, also co-founded Huffington Post, hmm. the creator of 4chan, worked out of BuzzFeed's office. And I think that that the right-wing populism that they really like drove and fully embraced, you know, was incredibly well-suited to these tools and better suited than kind of Obama, uh, than on one hand, on the other hand, Obama liberalism. And here's another Jonah Peretti clip from that show of ours in 2008, describing how things go viral at all as a new concept for people, something he framed at the time as the Board at Work Network. It's an amazing thing that, that this network has, has emerged of millions of board office workers. They all have a computer on their desk. They connect to high-speed internet, and then they spend their day IMing each other on Facebook, on social networks, blogging, and collectively, they create a network of, that can share media to, and spread media to more people than any of the major uh, uh, television networks or radio networks. Than any of the major radio. So you're saying the Board at Work Network is not just a funny name for the distractions uh, for the Board at Work. It's also becoming an influential information service or cultural force? Yeah. It, it's Every time somebody sees something and they think, I'm going to send this to 10 of my friends. Um, they're distributing media, just the way a, a, a network distributes media. Um, but they're not really thinking about the fact that they're all all these people together connected can spread things to 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 around the globe to hundreds of millions of people. So, what's your website, BuzzFeed? Is this a, a marketing tool? No. So, BuzzFeed.com is a is a place to go to see what people are talking about, see what people are excited about, see what's getting shared, what's getting sent around, all of those uh, little nuggets of things that, that people who are, who are bored at work or people who are, are looking for a funny, interesting thing or looking for something to share, um, they can go there and find, find that. Memories, Ben, right? 2008. I mean, incredible. I think in 2008, you guys must have sounded either totally incomprehensible or like geniuses, one or the other. <laughs> well, what, what were you thinking um, as you listened to that clip? Or just part of that exchange was about the new site he was launching then called BuzzFeed. Were you involved already in 2008? No, I'd never heard of it. I was off covering politics and, and writing blogs and um, getting links from the Huffington Post in a, in a sort of in a media ecosystem that I now think of as kind of the in-between stage between the old media and the kind of fully blown social media explosion of the 2010s. 
Um, yeah. Um, the parts of the book that contrast what Nick Denton was after with Gawker versus what Jonah Peretti was after with BuzzFeed, it's complicated because it seems like Denton was more interested in content and Peretti was more interested in Buzz for Buzz's sake. And yet Denton's con- content on Gawker, as you were starting to describe before, was much darker and arguably malicious. I mean, Gawker was brought down by, uh, by a, like a defamation suit compared to Jonah Peretti, who had progressive tendencies like in hooking his viral eyeballs vision with Ariana Huffington's progressive content. So how would you start to compare for our listeners what Peretti and Denton were each trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is these two guys both really did see a bit of the future. And Jonah saw this social distribution before other people. And Nick Denton saw that another facet of, of digital media, which was the extent to which it could kind of peel the hypocrisy back, whether you liked it or not. It could be it was going to be a place where people said what they really thought. And by the way, like, is that always a good thing? I don't know. But he, he thought so. And, and sort of exposed, you know, just exposed whatever their often their worst impulses where he, you know, like, you know, I mean, he published a porn site, among other things. And I think basically thought that this sort of glossy media was both lying about what the journalists really thought, and the journalists should just publish the same things they said to each other in bars. And then also that people were lying to themselves about what they really wanted. They didn't want to read this high-minded nonsense. They wanted things that were meaner and snarkier and darker than than they would admit. And that this new social media and this new this new form of media could give them that and could and you know, I think it's a double-edged sword. Like I think at times stripping away the hypocrisy of the old media was a really valuable thing. There was a lot of hypocrisy. Um, at other times, the logical conclusion of it was exposing things for exposure's sake. I mean, as you say, sort of intimate videos were kind of the most extreme logical um, logical extent of that. And in fact, you know, Gawker's demise, which was the result of really a conspiracy by a billionaire, Peter Thiel, against them. And Thiel was mad because they'd written about him being gay when he wasn't fully out. And Denton had then said, added in some mean comments about why he wasn't more out. And Thiel then launched this crusade against Gawker. But the tool he used, it wasn't defamation, it was invasion of privacy. Hmm. And the, the allegation, which a jury sided with them, um, you know, with, with Hulk Hogan on, that they'd invaded Hulk Hogan's privacy by publishing this intimate video. I think Today, that's just totally obvious. How could you publish something like that? But it was a, there was a moment when that was vaguely within some of the norms of how digital media worked. Was there a special relationship between BuzzFeed, meaning Jonah Peretti, and Facebook, or even between Peretti and Mark Zuckerberg as individuals that actually tweaked Facebook's algorithm to help promote BuzzFeed content's reach and maybe to diminish gawkers? Did the rivalry get to that level? Um, well, Peretti definitely, you know, Zuckerberg had tried to buy BuzzFeed in 2011. And um, when I arrived at the office, Jonah was looking at the consolation prize, which was a gift card um, for yeah. having said no to, to Facebook. And they talked a lot and messaged a lot. And and to some degree, Jonah would be sort of, you know, talking his book, but also they they were together trying to figure out the relationship between media and the platform. And you know, and ultimately, I think Zuckerberg decided that the relationship between media and the platform was that there wouldn't really be one and that there was no space for professional media and no place for anybody to make a living on it. And I think that was a huge, I mean, that's ultimately, there were a lot of business mistakes along the way, but that's ultimately what did a lot of these sites in. 
Part of the issue you identify in the book is the business model of trying to make money by offering free content that attracts a gazillion eyeballs, and then you can sell advertising around it, trying to make a successful business out of that, failed for Gawker, for BuzzFeed, for a number of other sites. Do I have that right? Yeah, that, yeah that's basically right. Um, isn't that, though, the model of, you know, the old media staples? I mean, newspapers that were sold for pennies to jack circulation and then sell ads based on the number of readers and network TV, that juggernaut, which was free over the air in its early heyday and made so much money. I'm curious why you think yeah, if it worked for those... Commercial radio, podcasts. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, how, co- how come it didn't work in this case if it worked in those others? The, well, the closest analogy is cable. The, 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 you know, we thought that the... That we, that the Not free, just, though. Ju- well, right? we you thought that just as... Right, because it wasn't over the air, right? But just as these cable these cable operators had laid wires in the ground, and then companies like MTV, ESPN, came up and built great businesses. And the key people who owned the cables knew that they needed people making content, and those people needed to make a living. And there was a real symbiotic relationship between ESPN and Comcast or whatever, you know. And we thought, okay, these these social networks, Facebook, but also Twitter and Snap and Pinterest and a number of others, they're the new pipes, and they're going to want to encourage great high quality professional journalism, great high quality professional entertainment and pay for it sort of, you know, so that they compete with Netflix and the New York Times for your attention. Um, they were for, you know, and I think there's an argument about whether they were right or not, but it it turned out that they were totally committed to to relying basically solely on user generated content, which is free for them, which is obvious, and, you know, everybody likes free. Um, and, and that was the decision they made that I think to some degree doomed this whole generation of companies. So from your insiders and leadership seat, what was BuzzFeed at its height and to the central premise of your book, why has it all fallen so far along with the others in the group like Gawker and Vice? You know, what we, and I'll talk maybe particularly about the news operation that, that I helped build there and, you know, that did a lot of work that I'm really proud of and after I left continued to. Um, you know, we, our idea was that we were building a news organization for this new social media world. And that meant that it would be distribu- distributed on social media, that it would cover things people on social media cared about, that it would cover the social media companies. And, you know, the, the things that people on social media cared about broadly also included Donald Trump and what was happening in the world. And at our best, we, you know, had a lot of readers and broke huge stories, the early stories about misinformation on Facebook and things like that, and many others. Um, but I think we, you know, but that we but we never we never developed a business model that worked. I mean, that's you know that's the boring truth of why these things are are, are really in trouble now. Yeah, and yet things continue to go viral online and have a tremendous impact. So, do you see uh, an evolution or maybe a devolution from the early digital age uh, media sites to the hyper combative politics of today in the way that we see them online? You know, I think part of the reason that Facebook and other social, particularly Facebook, kind of walked away from news was how divisive it got and how divisive the arguments about news got. They're being hauled up in front of Congress. Everybody on their platform is screaming at each other. I think broadly that moment kind of pushed Facebook. And if you go to Facebook now, you know, things do go viral, but less actually, much less. And Twitter and Facebook, you know, will argue with you about whether they are numerically in decline but are clearly have lost their kind of cultural centrality that they had a few years ago. And I think 
the way information travels is confusing now. I think it's much more splintered. I think people are kind of feeling their way toward toward a new moment. And your Times article even references the firings of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon in the context of this history. Do you think a certain kind of combativeness might be going out of style, even as these digital outlets that made things edgier fail as businesses? I mean, you know, I mean, maybe that was a stretch, but doesn't it feel like we're sort of entering a different cultural moment? I mean, you know, those were both decisions by the giant corporations that own those media companies, ultimately Fox News, uh, you know, Fox Corp, Rupert Murdoch, for whatever reason. And there have been a lot of them, including the Times today has this incredible story on this text message he sent that, you know, if you didn't watch his show, it would have been pretty shocking um, that, you know, that, that they that they were trying to reel things back in, in some sense, Don Lemon, a totally different personality and character, but did sort of was sort of the best known or one of the best known faces of a very combative anti-Trump CNN. And it seems like discovery, the uh, Warner brothers discovery, the conglomerate that owns that is trying to reel it back in. Um, again, those are decisions made because they buy corporate C executives who want to please advertisers who have a lot of different motives, not just, that that's their intuition of the, the, the audience, that's what the audience wants. But it does, I mean, the, the effect is to pull these outlets a bit back toward the center. So last question, if those sites like Gawker and BuzzFeed offered an alternative to what you call stuffy mainstream media in ways that got millions of views every day then, is anything providing that now? Well, I think, I mean, I think stuffy mainstream media had a pretty tough decade and learned a lot and is... is in some ways, less stuffy and more interesting, I hope, than it was. But also, I think what people want now is different. I think people are looking for transparent, trusted voices. I think it's why radio and podcasts are doing well, actually, including this show. Um, they're looking for people who can synthesize this huge, diverse flood of information that's coming in. Um, and those are the things we're trying to do at Semaphore. But I do think it's this it's this different moment where the thing, the problem you're trying to solve is actually in react. you know, is the problem that the last reaction created. I'll let you promote Semaphore on the way out the door. This is the new news organization that you're now editor-in-chief of. For people who haven't heard of it, what's Semaphore? So we're trying to do what I just described, provide transparent news from journalists who are going to tell you, who know what they're talking about, who are going to break news and also separate their new, the news from their opinion and bring in views from all over, including ones we disagree with. So you can, yeah, I don't know, so, so, so that we're trying to talk to you like human beings and, and rebuild some trust. Ben Smith's book is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Thanks for sharing it with us, Ben. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.